you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Amos. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one of ours. They can be found in the pockets in the pews in front of you. And the book of Amos can be found on page 716 of those Bibles. Needless to say, there is much that God might be angry for in our world. There are many who stand to oppose the will and the command of God. We know that this world is filled with terrorists who seek to use God's image bearers as a means to political ends, who make bloodshed a form of currency. Their condemnation is just. We know that there are communist regimes, both in North Korea and in China, who seek to replace God with the state, who believe that humans ought to be sacrificed for the good of that God, for the good of the state, and who hold back the truth to wield their ugly power. We rightly believe that their condemnation is just. There are radical factions within our own country who in their anger and frustration burn and pillage that which is not theirs, who undermine the very government that they seek to reform and seem to love and to long for anarchy more than order. Their condemnation is also just. There are politicians in this world who, while they speak what is good, they pursue what is evil. They sell themselves for votes and for power. They trample in various ways on the poor and the needy. Their condemnation is just. There are prosperity preachers who peddle the word of God for money, who sell the American dream to the greedy, using sin and proclaiming it as God's good grace who pervert the truth at every turn, rightly believe that their condemnation is just. There are wolfish pastors who seek, above all things, to fleece the flock for their meat and their wool, who use God's word to uphold their ungodly influence and authority, who abuse, misuse, and crush God's people under the banner of Scripture, and hide behind a veneer of truth while they deny love. Their condemnation is just. There are churches that lust for worldly influence, who sell their convictions to the world for a voice, who give itching ears every scratch that they desire, who hide behind the veneer of love and would deny the truth. Their condemnation is just. But are we any better? We say that we belong to a kingdom that belongs to heaven. We belong to the kingdom of Christ and we belong to the kingdom of God. But our walks and the way we act and what we speak in this world seems to be just like the world. We say that Jesus has overcome, but many of us still base our winning and our losing on worldly standards. We say that we are called to be holy, yet we do not love the Lord enough to sweat and suffer for our sanctification. Do we think that we will escape? Is our condemnation not just? Do we simply proclaim our own righteousness without actually striving to attain it? Do we truly love God the way that we proclaim we do? Are we not filled 
with selfish devotion and greed ourselves? Are we content to speak of the ills of the world, to go out of our way to point out the sins of everyone else, to herald and approve of their condemnation and not of our own? The book of Amos is meant to combat the beliefs of a people who are utterly unwilling to look at their own faults and instead only praise God for the condemnation of others' faults. It is a book for the church who, let us be frank, at times excels at pointing out the faults of those who do not belong to her while dismissing or ignoring or hiding her own. Amos says very clearly that he was not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but was compelled to speak to the nation of Israel at the absolute height of their prosperity. The whole situation that Amos is speaking into accords well with that that we find in our own nation today. The nation of Israel has had much military success in the recent decades leading up to Amos. They feel as though they are protected strong and wealthy, and by all worldly standards, they are this. The prosperity that Israel knows during the time of Amos was hardly ever matched in Israel's history. But that very prosperity is part of the problem they face with God. If you were to read through the beginning of the book of Amos, Amos would do exactly the same thing that we did this morning. He looks at the nations that surround Israel and he crisscrosses Israel geographically, talking about Damascus and talking about Gaza and talking about Tyre and talking about Edom and talking about the Ammonites and talking about Moab, coming even so close to talk about Judah, crisscrossing all of the enemies to point out how faulty they are, how wrong and how sin-filled they are. Seven of them, certainly he's done. For he comes and he lands on Israel itself. And one of the great refrains from that first chapter and a half of the book of Amos, each one of these nations will have its strongholds taken down. These pictures of the fact that they are secure in and of themselves, that they have wealth to build the strongholds, that they can, they can maintain a strong military, they will be safe from anything that happens to them. God says, I will remove it from them. Chapter 1, verse 4, 7, 10, 12, 14. Chapter 2, verse 2 and 5. This is a warning for Israel. You want to trust in your own righteousness and strength? The only thing that you will reap from it is your own downfall. Today we will talk only about three themes from the book of Amos. An important book that I pray that we will learn much from. The first thing we should learn is do not put the Lord out of your mind. Do not put the Lord out of your mind. After this indictment of the nations, we read the indictment of Israel, beginning in chapter 2, as we read from verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside 
the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Do not put the Lord out of your mind. As Amos brings the first condemnation upon Israel, we have to admit that there is something of an odd juxtaposition here. If you go back and read that condemnation again, what Amos begins by saying is all of the things that Israel did wrong, all of the sins that they have, just like he did for every other nation. In verse 9, we hear the word yet at the very beginning of that verse, and we might think that what is coming is a contrast between what they've done and what they ought to have done. Yet what I commanded them was this or something like that. But instead what we get is an explanation not of what they were commanded to do and didn't do, but what we get is an explanation of who their God is. Not the God of the nations, first and foremost. Not the God who has worked wonders for the Edomites. Not God who has worked wonders for the Amorites. God who has worked wonders for Israel. He is their God. He has worked for her good. The idea is if they truly understood the Lord, if they knew him and how he had revealed himself, they would have clung to his words. These wicked things that Amos lists of them, that they are greedy, they've promoted slavery, they don't care for the poor or the afflicted, they pervert justice continually, there's rampant sexual immorality, there is idolatry, there is taking of what belongs to God. If they had known who God was, would not have been done, but rather they would have loved the poor as their own. They would have cared for their neighbors. They would have been faithful to God. They would have sought right relationships in every aspect of life and given to God the very things that he has asked. They have forgotten who God was. In chapter 5, we read this in verses 4 through 9. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion turn and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. 
The fact that God even needs to turn to Israel and say, seek me and live indicates that they do not know the God they're dealing with. They have walked away from him. They have turned their backs on him. The emphasis of this passage, again, when he says, seek me and live, he needs to explain who he is. It is on the nature of God. He has not just made them, but he has made all of nature, the Pleiades and Orion. He is the one who turns darkness into night, or excuse me, turns darkness into day and and day into night. All the other gods, all the other things that they are mixed up with are simply imposters. They are not gods. The issue seems to be fairly simple. The Israelites have learned to lean on the other nations, both financially and politically. And that brings with it cultural borrowing as well, and that brings with it the gods of the nations. And Israel has allowed such gods to be in their midst. And that changed how they thought about their God. And they conceived of themselves differently because, again, What we find is throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, the refrain is, you become what you worship. You will always be what you worship. If you worship false gods, you will become like those false gods, seeking money, fame, sex, and selfish desire. But if these people had known the Lord, they would have sought what was right and good and true. These other gods have pushed the Lord out of the mind of the Israelites And it's not that he's disappeared entirely, but he has been relegated to one place among many. He is a God among the pantheon of gods, and thus he is not the center of their lives and not the center of everything that they know of. His nature and his word does not mean for them what it ought to mean for them. It does not center their lives. They know him, but not as they should or will. As Pastor Richard read this morning, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. For behold, he goes on to say, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought and makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. They don't know him. They know of him. They've heard of him. They will even go about offering sacrifices to him. As we read about in chapter 4, just earlier in verses 4 through 5, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal, multiply transgression, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. They know something of him. They know that they ought to sacrifice to him. They know that they ought to bring him treasures from, from what they have gained. They ought to bring him tithes. They know this, but they do not know the Lord. They were simply of the mind that the Lord will automatically give them what they need. Friends, we are ever moldable. We're not rocks that will take the form of what is around us. but We're like liquids, poured out, pressed, and molded into whatever container we're poured into. That is the shape that we take on. You are much more moldable than you believe. This is why we ought to meet regularly, to pray with one another, to spend time in the Word, to sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs. These things are the mold that we are to grow into and to be shaped by. 
This is precisely what Paul says in Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, you need to know that this molding of who you are is not an ancient phenomenon. It's not something that just happened to Israel back in Amos' day. It's not something that just was a warning that Paul had to give to his culture in the day, that for some reason now we're in a culture that is so pure and good and holy that we don't need to be concerned about this. The same pressures seek to mold us, to displace the Lord in our own thoughts. We conceive of our money more in terms set by Wall Street and corporate America than by God. We conceive of our responsibility to our neighbors more in terms of the laws of the land than by the pattern set down by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These things ought not be so. Read Scripture. Speak about it. Think about it. Talk about it with your fellow brothers and sisters. Seek its truth. Remind yourself of these things in songs. Let it form and mold who you are and what you do. For in doing so, we will always help to fight Israel's next problem, which is our second point this morning. Friends, do not presume upon the Lord in your sin. Do not presume upon the Lord in your sin. The whole intro implies this. The whole intro of Amos seems to set up the nation of Israel for the fall that will come in the second chapter when Amos lays it on them. The whole point is that as Amos is going around all of these enemies, all of these countries that fight against Israel, and he lays them out and says, the word of the Lord has come, and it is said that he will destroy them. He is doing the very thing that Nathan did to David when David was found in adultery. And Nathan weaves him a story of a a wealthy man who steals the lamb of a very poor person. That's all he's got is this lamb, and he steals it. And David is riled up, and he says, well, you should find him, and we should... Make sure that justice comes forth. And Nathan says, you are that man. Amos is set up to get the people to buy into it. That they are willing to listen to the fact that those sins deserve punishment, but in no way, shape, or form do they think that they are guilty of the same things. They are blind. So God continues to remind them of who he is, of what he has done, and the worthlessness of idolatry. Again, in chapter 5. We read in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sekuth, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Amos looks at them 
they hear the destruction that's coming to the nations, and he knows, you desire the day of the Lord, you fools. You want to see God's judgment over the nations come. Why would you possibly want that? Do you think that God will spare you? The answer is clearly yes. Yes, we bring our tithes, we bring our offerings, we bring our sacrifices. God says, I hate them. I hate them all. They think that God can be bought off with cheap sacrifices. They think that they know him, that he is like every other God, that simply doing the thing is enough. As long as we bring sacrifices, it doesn't really matter how we live, we will be forgiven for it. That we can just come to God, give him this bull, give him this calf, and everything will be made right. If you think that he can be bought off with these cheap sacrifices, the mere words heaped up to the heaven will save you. But friends, they won't and they can't. The nation of Israel forgot the nature of God. They forgot that he was God alone, that he was not one of many gods to be appeased if possible to make your life a little better, to be appeased as one of the gods who might make life a little easier for you. But rather, he is the only God to concern themselves with. He is the God of creation who was alone God and is alone God and whom all of their fortunes and futures depended entirely. So that when God comes, when God shows up on the day of the Lord, it will not be a day of rejoicing for them, but a day of darkness because they do not know their God, because they think that they can buy him cheaply. Of course, you can look at these and say, well, we don't offer sacrifices. Perhaps what's being said here is that they thought that they could say certain things or do certain works and that the Lord is guaranteed to forgive them. But we don't do that. We have faith in Jesus. Friends, faith in Christ that believes that we can do wrong and live wrongly, continually, not hearing the word of the Lord and not doing what it commands us, is a cheap faith. It is just as presumptuous as what Israel does here. No, you don't have to offer sacrifices. That doesn't make your faith more dynamic. It makes it cheaper, especially when you do not desire to know the Lord. When you presume upon the Lord, you simply offer him faith with no repentance. That's what it looks like. It is faith with no repentance. It is the belief that God will just forgive your sins because you've asked for it. That he will simply forgive your sins because you call out to him. Not because you're in trouble, but because you're caught. When you're caught in your sin, what what are you going to do? Amos talks about this. In Amos chapter 9, verse 2, he says, If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it will kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord knows your sin. What are you going to do when the Lord comes for judgment? What are you going to say? Say, well, okay, I guess you found me. I know that I'm guilty in your sight. I know that I've done the things that you said not to do. So can we just 
kind of get the forgiveness over with and I can move on with life. Friends, if your faith and your admission of guilt sounds more like you're upset that you got caught than you are upset that you did the thing, you are presuming upon the grace of God and you are presuming upon the Lord in your sins. Israel knows that it will get caught, but it's simply assuming that their cheap, cheap forgiveness will be extended to them. Faith without repentance is worthless, and faith without repentance is nothing but presumption. You must know something of the weight of your sin to come before the Lord and to find forgiveness in Him. You must know something of the weight of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for you. This is what the sacrifices were there at the beginning for. They were costly. They were meant to cost them so that people would have an inkling of the weight of their sin, an inkling of the disaster of their sin, an inkling of the the destruction that would come to them if this animal didn't take it away from them. We know more than that now. We know what the weight of our sin required. It was not the blood of an animal. It was not the blood of bulls and goats. It was the blood of Jesus Christ himself, eternally God, to come to earth and to die for us. How could we possibly, how could we possibly say we love the Lord and not be moved by our own sin and presume that all we need to do is admit that we got caught and that's enough. I tell you before the Lord, it's not enough. There must be a gut-wrenching repentance that goes along with it. You need to know this doesn't mean that the Lord is not kind or do good even to those who presume upon him. In Amos chapter 7, we're introduced to the first of four visions, the first two of which Amos himself acts like Moses, interceding for the people. God promises that destruction is going to come. Amos steps in front of the sword and says, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relents concerning this. This is a mercy of God. It is a mercy of God that the people of Israel will never know of. They might complain about all of the wickedness that happens to them. We do the same. Do you not know how much God has spared you from that you don't even recognize? As horrible as life can be at times and as difficult and strenuous, as painful and sharp as life can be, do you ever stop and think of what God has actually spared you from in giving you those things and not other things? That God has relinquished in the things that he was going to bring you because it would crush you? And even then, when he does bring hardship, he sends it not as a punishment, but as a guide. The very thing that, again, Pastor read this morning from Amos chapter 4. I brought you cleanness of teeth in your cities. I love that particular metaphor. I didn't let you eat. Your teeth were clean not because you had enough crest at home. Your teeth were clean because they had no reason to get dirty. I didn't give you bread. I didn't give you meat. I didn't give you wine. I gave you nothing, not to punish you, but so that you would learn. 
that I am the one who gives you all things. But you didn't learn. They've rejected the Lord without mercy. And so God will reject them in his mercy. They do not know him, but they will. They have not sought the Lord. They have not. They sound like they do. Sometimes they act like they do. They can talk like they do. They will call upon his name. They will say some of the right things. But they have not sought the Lord. They have only sought his forgiveness. And we must learn the difference between those two things. One is sincere and abiding faith that the Lord your God will honor. Seek the Lord. And he is mighty to forgive. He is kind and gracious in the Lord Jesus Christ who has taken upon your sin to forgive you all of your sin. If you seek the Lord, you will live. If you simply seek forgiveness, if you simply seek to continue to live your life but only be cleared of the things that you've done wrong, you have presumed upon the Lord and forgiveness will not be given to you. Friends, know the Lord now in mercy while you can. Don't presume upon him for God will never be mocked. The Lord Jesus Christ will indeed forgive you, but you must seek him That brings us to the third and most important of all of the lessons that we get from Amos today. And that is that you should not and do not prey upon the Lord's people in your greed. And that's P-R-E-Y, for those of you who are taking notes, not P-R-A-Y, okay? Pray to the Lord with all your might, but do not prey upon the Lord's people in your greed. The prosperity that these people have experienced and the presumption that God would always be on their side meant that the rich were willing to crush the face of the poor. And they thought that they were okay in doing so. Many texts in Amos point in this direction. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. On that day... I punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike their winter house along with their summer house, and all the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. You got that vacation cabin? God says, I'm coming for that too. Chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Because you trample on the poor... And you exact taxes of grain from him. You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell on them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate, that it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Again in chapter 6, in verse 1, Amos goes on, 
Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see. From there, go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music and who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils and are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And finally, in the eighth chapter, verses four to eight. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephath small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals? sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. Israel was fat in wealth. They were great and mighty and powerful. The rich in the land had prosperity unlike any in Israel had ever known. And the poor were just as poor and destitute as they had ever been. As soon as we start talking about wealth, some want to isolate the problem of wealth and immediately say, yeah, yeah, okay, we've got rich people here. But the problem surely is not the fact that they're wealthy and say, that can't be. We go and we read of Abraham, and Abraham is exceedingly wealthy. We read of people like David and Solomon who are exceedingly wealthy. Yeah, yeah okay. That's true. I want to press it even further, though. I want to make it very clear that God does not possibly and cannot possibly despise wealth or riches. This is the very promise that he holds out to us. The very promise that he held out to the nation of Israel was that you will go into a land flowing with milk and honey. What does it mean to be flowing with milk? It means that you've got a lot of animals there who provide milk. You're flush with cattle. Now, we don't think of that as being quite the same thing as being flushed with Benjamins, but it is the same thing. You have riches. It's flowing with honey because you've got enough fruit trees to support the bees that make honey. You have everything that the land could possibly provide for you. The Lord wants his people to be rich. He wants them to be wealthy. Amen. God loves wealth. He has and offers to us the inheritance of a cattle on a thousand hills. We have unlimited resources and ever-flowing goodness from God. 
Our God is the one who proclaimed that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So yes, God has absolutely nothing against wealth. We need to proclaim that loudly. And yet I want to warn you very surely. The very reason we justify our handling of wealth, the fact that God doesn't hate wealth, is the very thing that undoes our justification of how we handle our wealth. God's wealth doesn't justify our wealth. God's wealth justifies our generosity. And while wealth is good and God wants us to have it, we need to be very clear that there are problems in this world that we will have an inheritance, safe and secure, greater than anything that you could possibly dream up, kept for us in heaven. But we are not in heaven. We are filled with sin, and we live in a world filled with sin. We don't handle prosperity well spiritually. God warned his people about this. When I give you good things, you will turn from me. When we get good things, we are tempted to always turn from God. We are like a child who, once they get the toy that they were asking for, forgets the hand that has given it to them. We certainly don't handle prosperity well communally. The problem is not that the rich exist. The problem is that, in this world, the poor do. As Jesus said, they will always be with us. And because of that, it is incumbent upon those who have to help those who don't. This is written all over God's law. From the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath, that it's not just the wealthy and the powerful who are to economically be able to afford a day off, but it is everyone who ought to be able to afford that day off, who ought to have it provided for them. You are to care for the poor that way. You are not to glean to the edge of your fields but to leave that for the poor to come by so that they too might have something to eat. God commands them to help their brothers and sisters in times of need. It's not just found all over the Old Testament, it's found all over the New Testament as well. Those who have owe on account of brotherly love to watch over and care for brothers and sisters. We find this in Acts. This is precisely what the church was doing. The church had people who were wealthy coming and giving their wealth to help out people who didn't have wealth because they were their brothers and sisters. Not because it was forced and commanded by the apostles, but because the leading of the Spirit led them to have love and compassion on those who didn't have as much. We know that we are called upon to help the poor and the weak. Don't think the church in general, probably us, corporately, have done a very good job of this. This is the driving problem in Amos, and it is really hard to get around. The wealth that they have has created injustice, and God cannot stand it. It is not just that they're idolatrous. You go back to Hosea. Hosea is going to talk to those people about their idolatry. He's going to talk to them about their adultery spiritually. And it's not that Amos doesn't think that that's happening to his people, but rather he is looking at the outcome of that idolatry. What happens when a people are idolatrous? They crush the face of their neighbor instead of loving them. 
they are hardened to the needs of those around them. This church has a lot. and We continue to be blessed by the Lord. But what have we collectively done for those who are outside the walls of this church? We help people when needs are brought to us. We do. Benevolence has been, been good. We try to do all of that we can when needs are brought to us. But systematically, we don't seek to end poverty. We don't seek to help those who are poor. There are a number of reasons we might tell ourselves, I've told myself, why we don't do this. 2020 was crazy and improbable. Hard to interact with the poor much during 2020. We moved, which naturally took up time and resources. We needed to get this building to fit people. And then we needed to get this building in order. All of that took money and time away from other things that would work. We, we, we had technical improvements that we need to make that we're still making to this church so that the word of God can be proclaimed, so that the people of God can sing songs, so that we can facilitate the worship of God. And walking forward, we, we have to know that there's going to be even more costs associated with that. There's always going to be more costs that we're going to come upon. And yet, even with all of that, as we will be talking about at our members' meeting, our, continu- our giving, because we are blessed by God, continues to blow past the budget that we have. We are projected to finish this year well over $35,000 above budget in our giving. And that is after raising our budget $30,000 from last year. That's good. Praise God for that. And we're a small church, right? Like, if we had a church of 3,000, those numbers wouldn't be nearly as impressive. But we're a small church. My question is, are we, should we just continue to use that money on ourselves? Should we just continue to use that money to make this building nicer? Should we tuck it away? Maybe bury it and hand it back to the Lord when he returns and say, hey, we've been good stewards of your money. Should we be content in doing this, placating ourselves in our consciences by doing exactly that, saying we're being good stewards, we're not wasting money, we're just not doing anything with it at all? My challenge for all of us, especially the elders, but for all the members of this church, is to remedy this by next year. Now, next year not being 2022, but by the time that we remake the budget for 2023, let's have that fixed. Let's find needs that we can meet. There are people out there who have needs. Let's find a way to meet those needs. See how we can help them. Find ways to do good to people who are parentless, poor, powerless, overlooked, vulnerable. And while we're at it, let's make it clear why we do things like this, why it's necessary and important that we do. 
It is not because we're woke, and it is not because we believe in some sort of social gospel. It's because we believe in the gospel. It's for the reasons we've already stated. Precisely the reasons that Israel failed. They didn't know the Lord, so they didn't do this stuff. If we know the Lord, we ought to do this stuff. This ought to be our business. Not because we are trying to bring heaven to earth, but precisely because we know we can't bring heaven to earth. We know that this earth is never going to treat people fairly. We know that this earth will always have oppression. It will always have violence. It will always have the poor with them. There will always be people who have less, not because they deserve less, simply because other people have more. It's not a zero-sum game. But that is also doesn't mean that what I just said isn't a true statement. We do this because we know that we have an inheritance in the heavens and it doesn't look like the numbers in our checking account. We do this because we know that God will always, always do good by us. So why whether individually or collectively, would we worry about a lack? As though doing good will not be rewarded by God. So let us give and let us help. And by doing so, we witness to the kind of people we are and the kind of king we have. We don't do this for our own means. We don't do it because we're trying to tell them how great America can be. We're doing it because we know that America can't be what the kingdom of God is, and we witness to the fact that we have a king, and we have a kingdom that we serve that is greater than this place, and this is what it looks like. We belong to a kingdom where there are none who lack, there are none who suffer, there are none who are oppressed and mistreated, where there are none who are cheated of what they are owed, where righteousness and justice are established. Let us witness to the greatness of that king and that kingdom by demonstrating its nature here. For Jesus is not just worthy. He is generous. He is kind. He is giving. He is humble. He is caring. And he is sympathetic. Ought we not be those things? Finish by reading again. Amos 5. Verses 14 to 15. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed know you. We know you for you have for we have heard from you. We have heard of the gospel of your son Jesus Christ and the work that he has done for us. We know that you have unmeasured treasure stored up for us and that you are always good to your people. So let us do good to those around us. Let us witness to the very knowledge that you have given us, the very knowledge of that inheritance, the very knowledge of the worthlessness of the things of the earth, let us 
acknowledge that and witness to that in the way we live our lives. Not lives of greed and selfishness, but lives devoted to others, to generosity of time, effort, and money. Not lives of worldly pursuits, but pursuing the very reality of heaven here, where we need to repent, give us such repentance. Where we need to act, move us. When we need to speak, give us words. When we need to love, fill our hearts in all things, make yourself known to this world through us, your people and the very bride of your Son. Do these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would.